Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to continue on with Annie Alumba's colonialism slash post-colonialism, covering chapters 2, 3, and the conclusion. Uh, before jumping into it, go check out part 1 if you haven't already. If you have, uh, you know, if you want to follow me anywhere than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. If you want to help me out, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows, they might enjoy it. They might, they might love to learn about this stuff. Uh, you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. And yeah, let's not waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's jump into this text, or the rest of this text. So let's start here with chapter 2, titled Colonial and Postcolonial Identities. So colonialism and the logic that accompany it rely on distinguishing the colonizer from the colonized. And this is that often done by pointing to race as a marker of difference, which we talked about at the end of the last episode, and the use of science to justify differences, racial differences. Now, Homi Baba tries to nuance this by suggesting that the dynamic is never so neat as to say that there's, there are these absolute differences, and that there is always hybridity at play as well, where colonized people are not just colonized people, and colonizers are not just colonizers. There is actually a giving and taking occurring where there is transformation occurring on both sides here which I need to emphasize, isn't to say that there isn't still violence that occurs. There isn't still genocide that occurs. There aren't still efforts to erase the colonized people's languages and cultures, identities. All of this still goes on. But it's also important to acknowledge how there are these other efforts that occur, that go on, that oppose colonial rule. Now, additionally, colonizers haven't always looked at colonized people as a homogenous mass. So for example, um, Columbus distinguished between cannibals and indios, which may in Spanish, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, the former, so cannibalis maybe, cannibals were uh, represented as violent and brutish, whereas indios were seen as being gentle and civil. So it's all too easy to diagnose the encounters as an extension of an unchanging notion of racism or orientalism, then. At least in Lumba's words, she, she cautions us against thinking about uh, colonialism operating as just a purely racist, homogenous enterprise, which it is, but it's important to acknowledge the differences, the nuances in how this racism manifests itself. Now, there were also threats presented to colonizers as well. So between or against black people, Europe believed that many European countries and colonizers believed that black people were black people because they were somehow contaminated and that they were, they were originally white, but they'd been contaminated and became black. Um, so please forgive the violence of that imagery. And what this meant, though, was that then whiteness was susceptible to the similar contamination. So in that interaction, suddenly white colonizers believed that they were at risk. There was a threat there, and it was important for them to try to mitigate that threat, but they didn't know how because it was a constructed enemy constructed through their own racism that actually started to undo their own belief and their own superiority. Now, what also occurred is that there was a falling out, kind of, in religious authority. Because religion, at least in Christianity, the belief is that all humans are, uh, arrived from uh, Adam and Eve. But 
that couldn't really be because that would then mean that all humans were uh, essentially related siblings to some extent. Uh, and that wouldn't really jive with racist colonial efforts to differentiate people from other people. So they wanted to believe the Bible, but they were also racist. So they wanted to think of all humans as being cut from the same cloth, but at the same time, they wanted to be, they did not want to be affiliated with anyone who was not white. Now, with an emerging scientific discourse that largely flew in the face of religion, there were then more reasons to suggest that there were differences, biological differences between people that almost made them as though they were from different species, which could justify further exploitation and colonialism against these people. Now that's, of course, it's absurd because you can't have interspecies relations and produce kids. Like, it's just, that's just the way things work. Of course, it's all the same species, but there were still efforts nevertheless to try to equate uh, people from Africa as being further down the evolutionary chain, being closer to animals as opposed to white Europeans, which is a way to justify European exceptionalism and their ongoing colonialism of the world. And so despite science's claim to undo previous modes of superstition, of irrationality, science was largely used to justify predating or older forms of discrimination and really absurdities that it believed itself to be undoing. So it actually justified racism. It justified discrimination. It justified separating people based off of scientific differences or biological differences. Now, these older legacies of racism that were used to justify colonial rule, be it for the um, spreading or the dissemination of religious texts like Christianity all throughout the world, this is something that capitalism would also jump jump on in order to justify the exploitation of non-white people uh, in various in various settings. So the point that Lumba is making is that racism actually comes before capitalism and capitalism just co-ops it for its own uses, which is for her one reason why just fixing capitalism or undoing capitalism doesn't mean that racism will go away. It doesn't mean that other forms of discrimination will just magically poof disappear. And this also flies in the face of the idea that capitalism will bring an end to these archaic ways of thinking, which archaic, I guess, is a pretty loaded term in this setting. It re repeats many of the same legacies of racism that we are trying to challenge here. But the point is that capitalism actually uses these discriminatory beliefs that were relegated to a previous time, uses them in order to bolster itself. So the Marxist fantasy that capitalism will bring about its own end or will put an end to all the previous uh, forms of thinking in the world would put an end to all of them in favor of a scientific socialism, so it goes. That doesn't necessarily mean that scientific socialism will not be racist or not provide justification for different kinds of colonialism. Maybe not ones conducted for economic ends, but purely for religious ends or for cultural ends. We will bring the workers' revolution to you uh, with bombs and gunpowder. And what about something like psychoanalysis in all of this? Uh, well, Heart of Darkness, as just one example, for those that don't know, Heart of Darkness is a novel by Joseph Conrad, 
where there's a man, I don't remember his name, is tasked to go into, I think, the Ivory Coast in Africa, go deep into the African jungle in order to find a rogue European colonialist named Colonel Kurtz. Kurtz. To find this guy and essentially... I don't know if it's meant to kill him. Anyways, the point is that this guy, Colonel Kurtz, has gone mad, so to speak, uh, has gone drunk, become drunk with power over the um, people there because he sees himself as being superior to all of them. And the journey goes from this other European guy's perspective, seeing just the mysteries of the African jungle and finally arriving at this guy who's just lost his mind. And this is a text that's some, you know, and I would agree, some people have said it is quite racist in that it is a racist text that tries to combat racism. Like the film American History X is a racist movie that tries to combat racism, which undoes its any claim to be anti-racist or any claim to be progressive. Where Heart of Darkness doesn't give any space to any African people in any setting to actually speak. Instead, it just filters everything through the eyes of Europeans, which is just how it replicates its own its own Eurocentric tendencies, its own Eurocentric values. Anyways, yeah, that's that's the book in a nutshell. You can check out the Wikipedia if you haven't read it before. Um, and so what Heart of Darkness communicates is that Africa is a place that arouses madness in the in Europeans. And this is reminiscent of Freud's idea, his psychoanalytic idea that civilizational progress is akin to human maturation. So what he's saying is that as civilizations progress, they become more like adults. And what he's implying then is that less advanced civilizations, according to his metric of advancement, are more childlike than more advanced ones. And really, though, we get the same in Marx and the Gundrissa. Marx, there's one point where Marx is like, like earlier civilizations are more childlike than newer ones at the time when he was writing in the you know the 19th century, which is, it's all the same thing. This belief that people from non-European countries are less civilized, less developed than Europeans. So Africa apparently, through psychoanalytic discourse, as represented in texts like Heart of Darkness, Africa is a site that produces insanity in the mind of the European. Now, interestingly, to some psychoanalysts, if an African person, person from an African country, demonstrated traits of insanity, they would actually be privileged to some extent because they would be seen as having, as being closer to a European, undergoing the same kind of psychosis as a European would go through in that setting. So it's like they, because they demonstrate traits of insanity, they share some European attributes. And then some psychoanalysts go on to say that, or celebrate colonialism as a necessary thing, like, like in Marxism, because it's necessary for civilizations to have a daddy figure, to have a patriarchal authority to keep everything under control, when of course it's not necessary at all. And um, Lumba draws upon Deleuze and Guattari, specifically anti-Oedipus, to show one argument why that's really 
an absurd suggestion. So just to be brief about that, what Deleuze and Guattari say in Anti-Oedipus is that psychoanalysis is obsessed with the idea that people are always determined by their relationship with their parents, the relationship they had with their parents, and they reduce everything, psychoanalysts reduce everything to this interaction. Whereas for Deleuze and Guattari, and at one point in the text, they consider other different familial, uh, other kinds of familial organizations to really problematize the idea that the nuclear family of two parents and 2.3 kids is really the only way to organize family life, to show that psychoanalysis is just an absurd, um, very, very European thing. Now, there are, there have been people who have been able to actually uh, some people have used psychoanalysis actually to combat colonialism, like Franz Fanon, who's used colonialism to, um, or he's used psychoanalysis to understand what happens in the colonial interaction, where it produces a sense of inferiority among colonized people, which can be remedied with psychoanalysis. But he, what he wants to do is to combat colonialism, but suggests that combating colonialism has to go hand in hand with actually treating people who have essentially undergone psychiatric distress as a result of colonialism. And he proposes psychoanalysis as one way to, to do that, to combat that colonialism and to combat its negative effects. Now, so far, we haven't really considered the place of women and gender in this dynamic, in the colonial dynamic. So the other, that is the often the colonized person, and their land are exoticized and they're imbued with feminine characteristics. So the female other, so to speak, is romanticized, like in the case of films like Pocahontas, for example, including there's so many others. And like the text I mentioned earlier, Henry Ryder Haggard, she, where she at the end of the, the book is, is revealed, and it's a very exoticized figure, sexualized in a lot of ways, as really fulfilling a certain fantasy of the European male mind, of having certain qualities that aren't to be found among Europeans, having darker tinted skin than Europeans, and that in itself is treated as, as something, as, as, as an exotic trait. Now, in some cases, non-European women like the Amazons, uh, Amazonian women, were not romanticized, but they were feared for their deviant femininity, as Lumba writes it. Now, Western colonialism obsessed over any sexual activities that deviated from their own, and they became a site of fear and fascination. So if women engaged in sexual activities that did not properly correspond to the European idea of how women are supposed to act, they would be classified as deviant. They'd be classified, they would be feared, uh, for the possibilities that they might transmit perhaps those beliefs or those ways of interacting with their own bodies, with other people's bodies, transmit those to European women, and then all hell will break loose. So this fear, these fears were used to actually discourage governments in Europe from allowing black or brown people into European countries to make sure that there would always be segregation, there would always be a separation between white people and non-white people for fear that they would essentially uh, interact with probably women of lower classes and convert them to their ways of existing in the world. They feared 
that colonized people would do exactly what they did to colonized people. Now here, because there was specifically the fear that lower class women would be affected, it's important to know how classism, racism, sexism often accompany one another. And they are different, of course, and the way they exert themselves is different depending on the people. But they do all go really accompany one another and fit together well in the European imagination because they are just such easy targets and so easy to discriminate against because of just how well entrenched um, these types of discrimination are in Europe. Now, as a side point, I should have mentioned this a minute ago, but as a side point, there was one, there's a point where Freud suggests that uh, female sexuality is kind of like the dark continent of female sexuality, which is to say that it's like Africa. Drawing a comparison here between women, women's sexuality, and Africa, the continent. Now, it's important to acknowledge that it's not just Europeans who are going to be sexist. Uh, of course, there can be examples of it found anywhere. It just so happens in Europe, it's just so deeply entrenched. But Lumba says, I think correctly, that uh, Fanon had some pretty sexist views. Who He viewed women as the terrain on which men move and enact their battles with each other. Where women within Fanon don't really have that much agency, instead they are always pawns to be played by white men or black men, and they just kind of float around between the two. Not to mention black women holding an even lower place in that whole arrangement in Fanon's work. Now, this isn't to say that they're, you know, sexism and colonialism are the same thing in any way. It's important to acknowledge the differences, especially how colonized women are going to experience that colonization differently than colonized men. Or, yeah, don't need to elaborate on that. It's pretty clear. Um, and sexism operated in specific ways in colonial paradigms. So, for example, in some African countries where there was matriarchal rule or where women held a fair amount of economic or political autonomy, um, other kinds of autonomy, the slave trade reduced women's economic and productive autonomy to, uh, to such a state where women became increasingly economically dependent upon men's income where colonialism also imposed and or intensified hierarchies upon people. So if a colonized country had a hierarchical system set in place, but it was maybe not so firmly established or there was room for to challenge it or, you know, it was because it wasn't so well established, it was had very little effect on the rest of the population, you know, however you want to think of it, what might have occurred in some instances or what, what occurred in some instances with European colonization is that the colonizers arrived and they intensified those hierarchical logics. So when they arrived, they would most likely be in contact with the higher class people or the most revered people in that setting. And those people would transmit their values that they believe. So not the values of like peasants or lower class people or people at the bottom of the social chain, social hierarchy, and then those values expressed by the upper class people would come to stand in for the real values of that entire territory or country, that entire land. And then the Europeans with their force would make it so that that was the real law of the land because it just so happened that upper class, I'm just using the term class here for lack of a better word, 
upper tier values happened to, in a lot of cases, because they relied upon subjugation of people who are of a lower tier in however, however this was arranged. Because they operated in that way, Europeans, at, in many instances, recognized and affiliated with those upper tier people so that it made sense for them to intensify those hierarchical structures to make sure that the people at the top of the hierarchy kept those positions so that the Europeans can participate in the exploitation of people who have always been exploited. Now, I think one of the important points here that Lumba is really wanting us to get across is not to romanticize a pre-colonial past. It's important to acknowledge the horrors of colonialism, but it's also important to acknowledge that it's not like any civilization is perfect. Like, of course, there are going to be problems there. Of course, there are going to be hierarchical structures, perhaps not in all, but in many. And they, are, they should be challenged. They should be uh, interrogated. But what Europeans did is they cemented hierarchical structures and with their power left little room for possible mutation and transformation. Now, in some cases, those ones, maybe other cases, European colonization produced the conditions for the alienation of people from their own cultures. And in the case of men, what would often happen, because in a lot of settings, women were, were subordinated in other cultures as well, because men felt alienated from their culture, that would mean that they, in some cases, intensive, try to intensify their hold over what they did possess. In a lot of cases, women or children. And so they would intensify their oppression of women or children, which is a direct result, at least the intensification is a direct result of colonialism. But then the colonizer sees this and says, oh, these men are treating these women poorly. We should intervene. And Western feminism follows along this legacy as well to say that it is white women's responsibility to save to save brown women, to save black women from their aggressive male uh, male partners. And so there's a there's a passage in Spivak where she says that white feminism sees its duty as to save brown women from brown men, like as though it's the responsibility of white women to save brown women or white people to save brown people or the colonizer to be saving the colonized. Now, this is all like one of the benefits of this approach or one of the efforts, kind of the secret attempts uh, of control behind this approach is that third world women, so quote unquote third world women, people who exist in like previously colonized territories or still under colonial rule are the most economically exploited on earth. They are the people who are most exploited by multinational corporations and other corporate interests that try to extract as much labor power from them as possible while paying them the minimum possible amount. Now from here, she turns to hybridity from Homi Baba's work, which is a very difficult, <laughs> very difficult topic. So depending on who you read, it roughly refers to the process of transformation when in proximity to someone other to your people or your culture. So Paul Gilroy, who wrote the text, The Black Atlantic, that I've covered on here, you can go and listen to an episode on that if you want. I think it was two episodes. Anyways, Paul Gilroy, for example, in his exploration of the West African slave trade, wanted to show, in Lumba's words, the extent to which African-American, British, and Caribbean 
diasporic cultures mold each other, as well as the metropolitan cultures with which they interact. So what he's trying to show is that all of these cultures undergo mutations and transformations within the colonial paradigm. It's not so simple as to say that any of them have this one unitary identity that never changes. They under, all undergo these mutations. Now, as for Homi Baba, hybridity comes into play when the colonial interaction fails in its quest to assimilate the other. And this is always the case with colonization. It is never successful in its efforts. That is because colonization always participates in its own undoing without, um, you know, with <laughs> essentially with countless fatalities along the way. But because colonization is always trying to create a homogenous other, trying to assimilate the other, it forgets the fact that that's impossible. People always evade any kind of easy capture in, uh, in imposing an identity upon them. And what often happens is that the people trying to actually impose that identity come to be transformed themselves. Lumba's issue here, because she's not a, she has issues with Baba. Lumba's issue here is that he makes of hybridity a universal phenomenon. That is, he suggests that hybridity is the natural condition of all colonization. And he doesn't investigate the real lived regional experiences of the colonized or of maybe women in particular. So it is a bit of a cop-out to say that hybridity is what conditions all colonial interactions, when that, that is going to ignore uh, the instances in which people are just killed so they can't engage in this hybridity, or where people are um, actively oppose colonial rule and fight back against it without actually adopting any of the traits of the colonizer. It's just a couple of examples. And that's a good place to put us into chapter three, titled Challenging Colonialism, which, you know, it's about res resisting colonialism. So in a sense, it is difficult to write of anti-colonial struggles because they've all been so different. They, either they've been direct aggressive forms of counter uh, of anti-colonial struggles, or they've been political legislation, maybe they've been economic sanctions. Now, in many cases, what has remained consistent across many anti-colonial struggles has been a reliance or a search for salvation in the idea of the nation. And this resonates with the episodes I did last, the last couple of weeks on Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities, where people, people look back upon the idea of the nation or look to the idea of the nation as a way to galvanize a group identity that has been placed under threat by, in this case, colonial rule. So people find solace in the idea of the nation to bring them together. So if you want more on this whole idea of the nation and it being an imagined community, you can go check out the episodes I did on Benedict Anderson's book, or I did a short one just explaining what imagined communities are, if you're just interested in that, because uh, it's, I think it's interesting. But in any case, the idea here is that people are brought together under this imagined umbrella of a nation, and they come to share certain attributes, even though they don't meet most of the people they share that nation with, but they all feel the same kind of connection to it. Now, some thinkers like uh, Chatterjee 
have been critical of Benedict Anderson's idea of the nation because it it's too quick to just reduce all nation national formations to one uh, one type of national formation, which is a very European one. He just see Benedict Anderson just sees it through his European eyes, even though he tries to very much undo that and not to repeat a Eurocentric cycle. But in any case, you know it's hard not to do that. But the point that Chatterjee tries to get across is that while it's important to acknowledge Benedict Anderson's contribution to the field, it's important also to consider how different nations developed differently. Not There wasn't just a submission to various European developments that created the nation. And so, for example, in some cases, post-colonial nationalisms were a way to oppose Western values, not just like to uh, secretly adopt many Western values, be it through print capitalism or opposition to Europe by Europeans, like in the case of America. Now, there's one other way, you know, to turn to a lost culture as a new, kind of new nation wasn't necessarily a good, or as a new nation, wasn't exactly a good thing, though, because it would be filtered through an experience with colonization and may adopt its attributes, adapt, may adopt its attributes. So if there was a colonized people who said to themselves, oh, to oppose this colonial regime, we have to return to our previous selves, and they imbue that previous self with a national identity, if there wasn't a nation there beforehand, what that does is it filters the group formation not through an organic attachment to one's own culture, tradition, heritage, but instead in response to another culture's presence there and it isn't necessarily a bad thing but it risks reducing the importance of heritage of culture of tradition in forming the nation or in bringing people together and instead makes a group collective purely a reactive or reaction to a form of violence and in some cases because that has been the most recent experience for these people they might even adopt some of those attributes of the colonizer and repeat that violence. So it's important, it's always important to be mindful of that, which, you know, who can you tell to be mindful for? Like these national formations always happen, like there isn't one person behind the wheel. They happen rather organically. And it's, you know, it's important as well to acknowledge that national formation, despite what Anderson says, isn't just about inclusion. It's not just about bringing people into the fold of certain values and cultural attributes and attitudes to form a nation. It is also contingent upon exclusion. So excluding certain people, and this has been really the case for much of history, where people are brought together, not because they share anything in common, but because they don't like someone else or they fear that somebody else might be coming to take some stuff that they have or an area, a plot of land that they have. So there have been some national movements, though, that haven't relied on the European notion of the nation. For example, Aimé Césaire's notion uh, of pan-national racial solidarity, his negritude movement, sought to celebrate blackness as a distinct racial, cultural way of being. So to unite all black people under this pan-national identity. So this is to revitalize a black communal living while opposing European violence and barbarism. Because what Césaire does is he tries to turn the script back against Europe to say that it is not African people who are 
uh, uncivilized. Colonialism demonstrates that it is Europe that is uncivilized. Now, after Césaire, Fanon came along and wasn't totally satisfied with this pan-national movement because he believed that it didn't go far enough. It wasn't forceful enough in opposing colonialism. It was essentially just trying to foster, it was embracing segregation by creating a space just for black people, but that wouldn't actually get at the heart of the very trends of colonialism that would probably just go and affect other people after black people. It will affect people in the Near Orient, which is what, what occurred in the Middle East. It will affect people in Asia and so on. Now, aside from both Césaire and Fanon, Paul Gilroy is, is different from the both of them in that he doesn't want to posit a, a kind of magical black alliance, but it, instead he wants to acknowledge a unity that is shared through the historical experiences and geographic movements of black peoples through the colonial period. So what Gilroy does is he looks at the various communities that formed in America among uh, enslaved people and how what came out of that what forms of resilience emerged what was the music what music emerged what forms of art cuisine culture came out of that and he recognizes this as being a new identity so he wants to say and identify the ways in which people in those settings in the united states enslaved people in those settings come to adopt an entirely new personality from their ancestors, which is tragic because they lose an attachment to their heritage, to their cultures, but they come to adopt a new one. And so it is in that he that he suggests that it would be a little bit erroneous. It's, and it's a little bit, it's a little violent to say that all black people are just, they can all just be brought together because they have been radically changed through uh, histories of slavery, and even before then. Like people in Kenya, diametrically, oh, diametrically different from people in Uganda, different from people on the Ivory Coast, you know, and so on. Or, you know, like Césaire and Fanon. I believe Césaire was born in Martinique. Uh, I, I believe so. But him and Fanon being born in Mar Martinique, Martinique being different from Africa, of course. So these are all things to consider. And it's important, and Gilroy tries to get at this, is really the nuance here to look at these varying histories and not to just submit to a universal understanding of black people as being one homogenous category. Even though it's there is value in finding these alliances, how black people are all mutually, they mutually experience discrimination at the hands of the world's biggest empire, uh, Europe, at least during legacies of colonialism and um, and the slave trade. Now, in many of these discussions of uh, nationalism, women are forgotten, or they are just used as essentially foot soldiers for a new social order to perform the labor of that order. So women are going to be expected to raise children in a new national, with their new, for a new national identity in a new national order. Where women's anti-colonial struggles then often then do not end after independence has been attained because even if there is an anti-colonial struggle that has succeeded and people are living in a post-colonial world that is separate from colonialism women might still be subordinated and so their struggle does not end they might still be fighting for their own 
liberation, perhaps the right to vote in that setting, perhaps not just being reduced to mothers or housekeepers in those settings. And not all women would participate in these anti-colonial struggles or these efforts to emancipate themselves. Like, Lumba's very clear that there were many women in many different settings. Like, she takes India as an example, where some women, even uh, after so-called liberation from uh, Britain, women were still forced to, like, work in the home and adopt certain uh, traits that, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of economic and political autonomy. And so some women tried to embrace an anti-colonial struggle, tried to oppose the remnants of colonialism, but some other women did not. And some actually turned, you know, to to Christianity, turned to uh, the caste system to try to, to try, they didn't try to do anything, I guess, but to enforce a hierarchical system that participated in the ongoing subjugation of some women over others. And of course, skin color plays a role here where lighter skinned women would be appreciated more than darker skinned women. And there's so so many layers to this. So what does resistance, what can it look like? Is it, is there a way to actually oppose the colonizer or will it always already be filtered through the colonizer's values? And so we consider here Spivak's hypothesis that the subaltern cannot speak. So specifically, uh, Spivak considers how the subaltern women, subaltern women who are lower class women in India, how they can't speak. They don't have a voice for any kind of political end or transgressive end. And so what she's doing here, Spivak is doing, is emphasizing a distinction between women in, in India in this setting Uh, who are of an upper class versus those of a lower class or caste uh, and who experience discrimination very differently. And this is because for Lumba and for Spivak, there is no unitary colonizer or colonized or subaltern subject. In her words, in order to listen for subaltern voices, we need to uncover the multiplicity of narratives that were hidden by the grand narratives of reducing people to the status of colonizer or colonized, or uh, or colonized, yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, some some people like Marxists have criticized such approaches because they don't center capitalism. And Jameson, Frederick Jameson, and others go so far as to say that post-colonialism is just the child of post-structuralism, where Lumba instead advocates for holistic engagement with both. You know, being able to consider the economic situation and to acknowledge that people are different. There are multiple different kinds of people in the world and it's important to recognize them for themselves and their various histories and locations. So in the case of India, to go back to that uh, in dealing with subaltern voices, there's a lot of consideration around sati women or women who self-immolate after their husbands uh, die where they, they are expected to kill themselves after their husbands die. And it's obviously a thing that people would, uh, Western feminists and other Western figures would chime up about. They would, they would condemn it without actually listening to any of the people involved. Uh, they would just say, oh, that's, that's horrible. How could they do this to women? When it, you know, its actual conduct was very rare. It was often imposed 
And in, in any case, what happened was the complexities around it were effaced in favor of the imposition of an idea about it from Europeans as just one example of how the subaltern isn't allowed to speak. They are spoken for. And there's kind of a tension in Spivak's work where she also she recognizes this and she says that it is the duty of the educated person to kind of speak up for the uh, marginalized, for the oppressed. But that just, it ends up repeating similar cycles of oppression. Like even if they are really uh, intelligent and know about these histories of violence, by speaking for others, I think it always opens the door for very for some kind of violences, some conflicts. And anyways, that puts us here into the conclusion. I think I said last episode that this was going to be longer than the last one, but it'll be. I was trying to make it about the same length. I always try to make them about the same length, and normally works out. Anyway, so the conclusion titled "Globalization and the Future of Postcolonial Studies." And this this is largely due to this chapter is um, an effort to highlight the way that people in the United States are losing their minds over post-colonial studies. And this also dovetails with the criticisms of critical race theory, people just freaking out. Um, the, the freedom of speech people only like a certain kind of speech, not, not this kind of speech. Anyway, so in, in a post-9-11 world, it is silly to think any country is really post-colonial. And it is also naive uh, to only consider imperialism a European act. And that is because after 9-11, the U.S. just expanded its military operations to so many different countries. Not to mention the fact that global capitalism has reached such a point that there's really no way to escape it. Not to mention the surveillance mechanisms that are in place to keep an eye on virtually every single country on Earth if, uh, if the United States or any other major country wanted to via satellites in the sky or uh, ways to actually check in upon networks and other forms of communication, not to be too conspiratorial about it. But anyways, globalization has essentially changed the nature of the game of colonialism. So borders, nations, culture, heritage mean very little when it comes to uh, capitalist imperialists who see Borders as just ephemeral, don't mean anything, all in pursuit of profit, all in pursuit of exploiting certain resources for just limitless profit. And so there are thinkers that very much fear these developments, like Hart and Negri, who both fear globalization and imperialism in this age, uh, but they also locate transgressive potential against it. So by uprooting old bases of discrimination, this globalization makes new forms of resistance possible. So they're a little optimistic, while also being very, very critical. Now, by contrast, someone like Etienne Balabar uh, isn't quite as optimistic. He sees new ways of discrimination as overshadowing any possible resistances, new kinds of racism seeping in that are going to be more difficult to challenge, more difficult to undo. And there's no denying that globalization and capitalism have had serious, seriously detrimental effects on local industries, knowledge production, healthcare, 
religion, culture, and so on. And any and many resistance movements have emerged as a result, trying to reclaim what is under uh, under attack. And she concludes just with examples of people really losing their minds about post-colonial studies, post-colonialism, and she concludes by saying that just because there are these kinds of critiques emphasizes the need ever, ever more of post-colonialism. And yeah, that, uh, that is the text. I hope I did it justice. There's, there's more to it that I just, I didn't go into every single detail. You really have to read it, but it's a great book. And if there's anything that you think I really should have included, I'd love to hear about it or that I got wrong. I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. They might love it. You can share it. Share it on your Instagram. Uh, if you want to help me out, do all those things, you can leave a review on a podcast platform. That'd be great. And yeah, on that note, take care. <laughs>